You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, it's exciting to be here. I think I've taught, I don't know how many times I've taught in this building, um, but it's so fun because I get to have a different... It's a different topic, seemingly every time. It's a different audience every single time. I've talked with the youth group about uh, about Birmingham history. I do a lot of uh, tours, Birmingham history tours, and then uh, done a lot of stuff with Rooted on family ministry and especially on catechesis, which is one of my previous projects with Tim on the New City Catechism. And so it's just fun to always always be here. Um, it feels like a feels like a home away from home. My wife and I live in English Village. We've got three kids. Um, our son's at Mountain Brook Elementary, and then our daughter is just wrapping up Mountain Brook Baptist Preschool, and then we've got a one-year-old um, as well. Wife is is from here, and so we're proud uh, members of this community, and just always have felt. Um, I mean, in my years at Redeemer Community Church and now at Iron City Church, just always felt like this is our, our home away from home. So thank you for being so welcoming. Um, it's just exciting to be able to talk about a, a subject that I'm clearly very passionate about, which is, is Tim Keller. I've known Tim since 2007 when I was wrapping up my time as the uh, news editor of Christianity Today magazine. And then I was, my last thing I reported on was this new ministry called the Gospel Coalition, of which he was the co-founder and also had written the Theological Vision of Ministry for that organization. Did three years of seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and then started working for Tim in 2010. Right around that same time, we started editing books together. And um, <clears throat> and then this project came about in 2020. A couple different things happened. You know, the world shut down, and Tim got a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And so with those two things coming together, it really crystallized for me the need for us to hear from Tim before he died. Um, and one thing that a lot of people I don't necessarily knew before now, is like you might be listening to a sermon from Tim or reading a book from Tim and you'll get this influence or you'll get this or you'll read this quote from J.R.R. Tolkien or this from C.S. Lewis or, or this from Edmund Clowney or Barbara Boyd or whatever. But unless you've read all of the books and you listen to all of the sermons, you don't realize the sheer amount that he synthesizes, the sheer number of things that he brings together. And it might not make a lot of sense, but what I wanted to do with this book was help make sense of all of those different influences. And we could be here for much longer than uh, an hour, an hour and a half tonight talking about all of that. So feel free to, I mean, once I get done talking, we'll take a lot of questions, hopefully, and feel free to ask about anything or everything. If you've, like, you'll have a chance to read the book or just you know, have no idea, I'm happy to do any of that. So what I want to do, especially tonight, is to talk about what I've learned from Tim, but to do it especially through the lens of this new project that Tim and I launched with the book called the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. The bottom line, I mean, you'll, you'll hear me explain this, but we're trying to raise the next generation of pastors, professors, and parents to be able to help navigate this turn towards secularism in our society. And so I'll talk about that challenge and what I've learned from Tim, because that was a major motivation behind the book, was to not merely talk about Tim, but to think, what, was, what does this look like in our day and going forward to carry on the best of what we've learned from him and that he's learned from others? So I wanted to open with a, with a passage of, of Scripture, 1, Tim, 1 Peter 2.12. This is a passage that I um, just 
kept coming up in my conversations with Tim for a, as long back as I can remember. First Peter 2.12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And part of what I've learned from Tim is simply do the right thing and expect opposition. Do the right thing and expect opposition. As an apologist, as an evangelist, that's kind of the unique gifting that he has to be able to to do the right thing, to teach the scriptures, to evangelize, to be faithful to his confession, but at the same time, to expect that opposition that we're told by Jesus himself and the Apostle Peter to fully expect and not to get completely rattled by it, not be completely caught off guard and to not accommodate or change the message as a result of that opposition. And so one of the things that stands out in this book is that and just what I've seen from 2007 is that he's really has not changed and you'll actually see this going all the way back to his, his college and his seminary. And I actually mean this as a compliment to him. Basically, he developed all of his primary convictions back at that point and has not changed them ever since. But part of the challenge is that the nature of the opposition has changed a lot over those years. What's interesting that you may or may not know or may not be able to take for, or, or may, maybe you do know or maybe you don't know, but for most of that history, almost all of the opposition Tim Keller faced was from his theological left. Because after all, he was in New York City, this very secular, post-Christian area with the largest gay population of any city in the country. So that was the primary concern. There was always this opposition from the left. And then uh, Tim Keller happened to be visiting a little place called Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama on election day in 2016. And suddenly overnight, almost all the opposition he faced was from his right. It completely shifted. Now he had not changed, but the conditions of the opposition had changed because he had never been a partisan figure. That was part of what got him in trouble with some people on the left before. And it's what got him in trouble with people on the right since then. And so that's one just interesting dynamic that I think is rooted in why that passage is substantial to him. Another chief characteristic that is, is plainly obvious when you look at the book and you put it all together, and I don't know what you would do if you got a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, which, as you know, is terminal, um, barring some sort, of, some sort of miracle. I don't know what you would do, but Tim Keller reads. <laughs> reads more, <laughs> learns more. Um, that's a, it's an interesting response. Now, part of that's because of a pandemic. It's not like you can have a, you got to go into treatment right away. You don't necessarily have a bucket list of all these places that you would go. But it's interesting. He doesn't really have any hobbies, at least that I've ever been able to discern. It's not a part of the book at all, but loves to learn. And that's just part of what inspires me so much and, and, I, and I can just relate to in a lot of ways with him. But it's a good example for all of us that no matter what we've achieved, what we've, what, you know, what, how we've developed, that there's, there's always more to learn. But I also want to say within that, that it's, it's not just the learning with the head, but it's also the spiritual transformation of the heart. And what I've noticed with him, and you guys have probably seen the news about 
revival in places like As you know Asbury University, and then you can see that also in um, we had that going for a while at Samford University as well. But um, a lot of people don't realize that that's been a major theme of Tim's entire career. He himself was part of a massive nationwide revival that, I mean, the timing couldn't be better with Asbury. It almost makes me wonder if it was planned. But the timing of this new movie starring Kelsey Grammer called Jesus Revolution about the Jesus movement of the 1960s, 1970s. Tim and Kathy Keller are very clear converts of that. I mean, Tim's conversion was in 1970, right? Smack dab in the middle of all of that, all of that happening. And so there was a revival there. Then when he went to New York City, it was another revival that broke out. Um, that was the yuppie revival as New York City was bouncing back from its worst years um, and, and really began to prosper a lot. One of the things that Kathy Keller, Tim's wife, says is that if you want to know how to plant a successful, start a successful church, just figure out where God's going to send a revival a month later. Move there. <laughs> and she said that never before in the history of the church, it's kind of the way Kathy talks, history of the church, has ever, has any church been prayed over by more people, and especially by women? And they experienced a tremendous revival. At Bucknell, it was from 10 to 100 students overnight, the Jesus movement. Um, and then at New York, in New York, it was from a handful of people to hundreds and then thousands within a couple years. And um, it's, just, it's just a major, major theme of their life. And so but what's interesting is that I started to notice something early on when I was interviewing him for this project. And it was that he was undergoing another personal transformation, a personal revival. Remember, just I did this interview. You can go listen to it. You can tell me if you hear the same thing I did. But maybe I just had the ears for it because I've been talking with him for so long. But there was this amazing transformation he and I were talking in March of 2020, and Tim's views of evangelism are very community-based. It's how he came to faith. They're very community-based. And he thought, there's just no chance for the church if we're not together in person, in community. And I think in some ways he was really correct about the effects on the church in New York in particular. But it was probably the most discouraged I've ever heard him. And fast forward that next January, he's had the pancreatic cancer diagnosis, he sounds like a different person. Now, you can listen to it on a podcast I do called Life and Books and Everything. I've asked a number of others, and the response has been, he sounds like a different person on there. He keeps talking about, I'm not fighting my cancer, I'm fighting my sin. You know, conversation, you know, comments like that. And it was just a, a beautiful thing for somebody that I've known uh, for so long. And so it's that ability to be not only the same person, but to grow and change at the same time. I think is that so much at the heart of why so many of us have been drawn to his ministry, to that he continues to learn, continues to grow spiritually, but he's the same person. Let me give you an example of this. I just published an article, uh, an excerpt from the book on this topic today at uh, the Gospel Coalition. But the first line of that is that at the very moment that Tim Keller was publishing his best-selling book on apologetics, The Reason for God, he realized that it was already obsolete. It's exactly what happened. And so that's the, that's the thing about lifelong learning. He, he had not published, um, not a major work until 2007, had some connections there in New York City to a major New York publisher, Penguin, Random House. And publishes The Reason for God. It's a New York Times bestseller overnight. 
clearly there had been a big market. This is against the backdrop of the new atheists. You may recall um, you know, even some of the debates that we hosted here in Birmingham. Um, but it's exactly at that moment that he's becoming this major international figure that it dawns on him that the world has changed and that we have to change not our message, but clearly our methods and our understanding. Basically, that we've been talking about apologetics. We've been trying to defend the faith up here, but that's not where people are anymore. They're down here. We, like they're making a bunch, We're making a bunch of assumptions of what people know that they don't have anymore there. And so that becomes, uh, in 2016, his book, Making Sense of God, which is not nearly as much of a bestseller as The Reason for God, but it's a much better path forward for where we need to be going and what we need to be doing. In Birmingham, in some ways, we're on the cutting edge of these things because we're a more diverse, eclectic city than most people realize. But at the same time, we're still in the middle of the Bible Belt, and it takes a little bit of time for these things to play out. But um, that's the kind of dynamic that I find so compelling with him is the way he, he grows and develops and, uh, and changes and learns, but while staying the same person with the gospel of Jesus Christ unquestionably at the heart of everything that he does. And so the way I describe this in the book is like rings on a tree. And I just, this, it clicked for me. He actually said this in a video with John Piper and Don Carson for the Gospel Coalition in 2014. One of my colleagues sent it to me, and I'm glad that he did, because Tim's talking about his influences. And he said, for any, you know, any of us personally, and any great leader especially, they ha they're like rings on a tree. So, so if you imagine it, you've, in Tim's life, you've got this core of his conversion. It's pretty dramatic, the way grace had just transformed his life. He had a very difficult home life with his mother in particular, very legalistic, moralistic background. Um, he also had some Lutheran background. Tim has a lot of Martin Luther in him in the sense that he's got a very overactive conscience, uh, <clears throat> which comes in part from his, uh, Luther would recognize it from his uh, Italian Catholic mother. <laughs> Uh, it's a very overactive conscience in there. So he never gets past that. It's always the core of everything that he does. Just learning inductive Bible study, the basics. That, that's, that's that core. It doesn't ever change the scriptures themselves. But by the time he gets to be in his 50s and 60s and 70s, now he's reading 700-page works of, of sociology and psychology from Charles Taylor. See, that's not the core. That's, that's the edges of growth that you see with that health, healthy tree. And I think for all of us, that's a, it's a good model, a good example for us of how to grow over time. And what I also appreciate about Tim, and this can go the wrong way. I asked John Piper about this because Piper's view is the complete opposite of Keller's. Piper's view is you find one theologian, read everything they do, just sort of immerse yourself. Tim's the complete opposite. It's just borrow, don't buy anybody, but borrow from everyone. <laughs> you know, don't buy anybody, but borrow from everyone. I can see how that could go wrong, but it works with Tim because he's got that concept of growing like an oak tree. I, I, I contrast it with lily pad theology where a lot of us, and sometimes I see this in Birmingham where people just hop from church to church to church to church, kind of just following the fads. And pastors can do that too. They can say, this is the hot thing, then this is the new thing, then this is the new thing, then this is the new thing. But it, again, it just kind of stays at a surface level. And so I think it's just, it's interesting the way he borrows to kind of expand, but instead of buying anything wholesale. Uh, one of the people that 
my publisher wanted to endorse the book was N.T. Wright. And Tim is a massive fan of N.T. Wright's views on the resurrection. Best book anywhere on evidences and defense of the physical resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I knew Tim was not going to go for N.T. Wright because they have dramatically views, dramatically different views on the gospel, on the book of Romans, on the book of Galatians, and of the reformers themselves. Tim is a massive advocate of Luther and Calvin in ways that N.T. Wright is not. So that's a good example of how he borrows from something that he likes about Wright, but then doesn't, doesn't uh, buy the whole thing. So that's just kind of a, a little bit of, of setting that stage, but let me put this against the backdrop of the particular challenge that we have today. And so the last time somebody was asking me earlier, when was the last time I saw Tim in person? I mean, it feels like I've been spending all this time with him, which I have, but it's been on the phone or it's been on Zoom. Last time I saw him was December of 2019. And he said something really interesting to me. I didn't know that it might be the last time I ever see him alive. And, um, and he said to me, Colin, I just don't know if anything I've done is going to be a good model for us going forward. He was describing to me how different New York even was from when he got there in 1989. He was talking about his, excuse me, at the time, his preteen granddaughter. And he said, I just, I can't assume things with her that I could assume in the world that I grew up with. We're just, like I said, we're going to have to go from here to starting back here. And what Tim and I are working on now is something called the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. You can get your koozie in the back and, and hopefully you'll grab a brochure as well. Learn more about what we're trying to do. But essentially, we're trying to rally church leaders across the board to reckon with this plain fact that we are living in the largest and fastest transformation of religion in American history. You may not realize it, but once, you, once it's been spoken to you, you probably can put two and two together because this is affecting everything from politics to the family to fertility rates to colleges closing. Everything is affected by this essential truth of this dramatic transformation. 40 million Americans have left the church in the last 25 years. 40 million Americans have left the church in the last 25 years. I'll put this in another, another way. Uh, I was speaking to a group of church leaders in Indianapolis a couple weeks ago. Indiana, as a state, one of the most conservative and religious in the country, is about the same percentage of people who say that they have no religion as Manhattan was when Tim Keller started Redeemer Presbyterian Church in 1989. One of the most conservative states in the country is the same level of secular now as Manhattan in 1989. There's your context. That's Indiana. I was speaking in Indianapolis, which is way less religious than the rest of the state. You can do the same thing with Birmingham. You can see this yourself. I was speaking with a group of Atlanta dads. They brought me in to talk about things related to this Keller Center. And essentially, you're talking here to 30-something, 40-something dads. And their kids are all in these elite private schools, Buckhead area. And they're telling me, especially through 2020, I have no idea how to talk to my child anymore. I don't understand what they're learning. I don't understand what's happening. I'm pretty worried about it. I'm pretty scared about that. You need to help us give this perspective. Well, that's, that's exactly what Tim and I were talking about, was that this is a dramatic change. Essentially, they were saying, I still grew up in, you know, broadly speaking, Christendom, 
These are 30-something millennial dads. I grew up in Christendom, but my, my children are growing up in secular America. And that's exactly what Tim has been talking about all this time and trying to rally church leaders toward there. So one of the things that we are doing right off the bat with the Keller Center, I was just working on this right now, is that we've commissioned the largest study ever of why people are leaving the church. I just wrote the foreword for a new book coming out through the Keller Center called uh, The Great Dechurching, which is looking at just all that we need to be doing on this. In fact, if you were there for my sermon today, a lot of that was derived from the same topics we've been working on there about the need to be able to see ourselves the way we are depicted biblically, which is as exiles, and that everywhere is Babylon, even the South in there. But that, come, that comes quicker for Tim Keller when you've been in New York <laughs> that whole time, uh, when you've been in the middle of that kind of, of situation. And so what Tim and I have been working on together is, is training, getting pastors, professors, and parents through online learning cohorts. We've, we've had a huge response to that already through podcasts and through conferences. Uh, a lot of different things. Again, you can learn more at thekellercenter.org and pick up that brochure to see what we're doing with that. But it's helpful to look back on Tim Keller's life and see that we shouldn't despair about young people because he himself, as a young adult, walked away from the church. I mentioned that he had this um, Italian Catholic mother who was very legalistic. She went through an interesting uh, history. One of the first things I learned about Tim was that he was baptized Catholic then, I'm not kidding, for good measure, also baptized Lutheran. I guess just to cover both sides of the <laughs> Reformation in there. Then was confirmed Lutheran. Then grew up in a holiness, like a very legalistic Methodist holiness tradition at a small denomination called the Evangelical Congregational Church in eastern Pennsylvania that his mother was really enthusiastic about. And then from there was ordained Presbyterian. So incredibly eclectic background there. But he walked away from the church for three reasons. They were legalism, racism, and liberalism. And I think these give us a good perspective on the situation still today. So the first was legalism. Again, it was a simple fact looking at his mother that there was, there was no grace. There were extremely high expectations that as the oldest child in the family, his job was to prove effectively his mother's worth in life. And it was interesting that I talked with Tim's sister, and these were a lot of things that Tim himself was not going to tell me, but Sharon, was, Sharon Johnson was going to tell me. And she said, it's so interesting, our parents told us, our mother told us, his father was basically silent, but our mother told us that Tim was the one with potential, so we're going to send him to private school but the two of you have to go to public school because you don't have potential. Um, it's just a very, a very difficult situation. And I, I could relate in some ways. My mother and I had, didn't always see eye to eye on, on some things. But Tim and his mother would just end up in these massive fights with each other. And essentially, he saw this kind of legalism in his church. And it's interesting, um, his, his, um, his younger brother... I don't think I have this in my notes here. His younger brother died of AIDS in 1998. He was gay. 
um, converted on his deathbed in hospice, essentially at the end of his life. But what's so interesting is that I asked his sister, because Tim didn't talk much about his brother, I asked his sister about their, their younger brother. And she said, you know, Tim was off to college before my mom was in this church for very long. So he and I, we didn't walk the aisle. Our younger brother walked the aisle every single week. And later on in life, when um, Tim's sister would visit her younger brother in his apartment in Baltimore, she observed that every single thing in the house was exactly where their mother had put everything. Like essentially, he was trying to become just like his mother, obviously trying to please, trying to appease. And so while Tim had rebelled by running away from that legalism to the end of his life and finally converting on his in hospice, I should say Tim's parents were there nursing him all the way through that process at the very end. But in hospice, the one question that Tim's brother had was, I just don't understand grace. It just doesn't make sense to me. And then it did through the Holy Spirit. But And you can, you can read in the book, probably my favorite part of the book, which is about the sermon that Tim preached at his younger brother's funeral. I think that's not known to anybody before this book. So that part some was really, I'm glad we got that in there. The second thing though, so he ran away from the church because of legalism. The second thing he ran away from the church from though was racism. Um, I think this can be hard. I, I did an interview with Philip Yancey uh, just recently, and I didn't realize that Yancey is just one year younger than Tim. And Yancey grew up in Atlanta. Very difficult family situation as well. Very fundamentalist uh, church background. And Yancey talked about the effect of growing up and realizing that all of the people you trusted the most in your life had lied to you. And it was about race. So Tim had the exact same experience, was getting to college realizing, you mean Martin Luther King Jr. isn't Satan? Because he was Satan to my family and to my church. Of course, keep in mind, Tim starts college in 1968. Number one song in America when he started college was Hey Jude. And you go back through the assassination of King, of course, that April, the assassination of Kennedy that summer, followed by the, you know, the DNC, the convention riots in Chicago. Incredibly tumultuous time. It was an incredibly jarring experience to go off to college and realize, wait a minute, my parents, my grandparents, all of my church you know, leaders, they all lied to me and told me that civil rights was this communist plot when it was in many ways also simply a way to live out the biblical commands, as we know full well here in Birmingham, Alabama. So that was the second reason he walked away from the church. The third was liberalism. So Tim had an experience in the Lutheran church where one year his pastor was a veteran Lutheran minister who taught him the confessions, first gospel presentation he ever heard. The next year was a recent graduate from the 1960s from Gettysburg College, didn't care about theology or confessions at all, didn't teach the Bible, it's all about social activism. And that was another reason he walked away from the church, because the church had nothing to say that was distinctive from what he could get from any activist group on campus. And so I don't think that situation is fundamentally different from us today, that a lot of the reasons these 40 million Americans have left the church is because of their rebellion against legalism, racism, and liberalism. So naturally, the opportunity there is for a church to be simply biblical, to preach grace, to preach God's love for all people, and to preach the authoritative scriptures in there, which I think Tim himself has done. So 
I just want to encourage you as you think about this sort of feels like this wide open back door of the church of all these people leaving, that to not give up on these young people. And to add something here about Tim, uh, I put this in the book, he was never considered to be most likely to succeed. Um, he, you can, once I tell you, you're like, oh, of course, he's a nerd. I mean, he and Kathy, like, they're just, they're just, you know. So he's, he's not, he's an extremely gifted teacher, but you can imagine him being at Gordon-Conwell, the guy who's sitting there on the kitchen staff just with his, you know, back up against a wall reading a book. That's just, that's his thing. I mean, uh, one of the, actually the first U.S. ambassador for international religious freedom, John Hanford, was his intern in Virginia. He said he'd drive around Hopewell, Virginia with a Puritan paperback book on the, you know, on the steering wheel. Uh, then Tim's assistant, Craig Ellis, told me Tim walks around Manhattan with a book. It's just like, he's just, he just, he just was not, he was a marching mate, it was a marching band drum major, plays the trumpet. Just not the person, R.C. Sproul was one of his mentors, but R.C. Sproul never saw any promise in him. Uh, Tim got a C in his preaching class at Gordon Conwell, desperately wanted to receive a, desperately wanted to receive an award. Because basically you become a TA, a teaching assistant to your favorite professor, and it came with a scholarship and everything. No one gave him an award. He ended with the highest honors, highest achievement. In fact, their best friend, Louise Midwood, told me that Tim, after class, all the students would go back to Tim Keller's dorm room and he would redo the whole lecture, but just with his kind of unique insights. <laughs> but nobody saw any promise in him. This was one of my favorite moments. Uh, Best man, R.C. Sproul did Tim and Kathy Keller's wedding. And um, uh, Bruce Henderson was the best man. He was uh, Tim's best friend through college at Bucknell. And I told Bruce Henderson, I just asked him, what did you think when Tim and Kathy, after Gordon Conwell, went to Hopewell, Virginia? And he said they must have been desperate. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tim and Kathy didn't think they were going to get a job. R.C. Sproul talked them into going into the PCA. There were no New England PCA churches. They didn't have any connections. You know, of course, PCA was founded here at Briarwood, long way from Boston. They just, you know, they took the civil service exam uh, to become postal carriers. And Bruce says, no, you don't understand, Colin. I'm saying the church must have been desperate <laughs> to hire Tim and Kathy <laughs> for a three-month appointment at a church of 100 people. <laughs> it was like, they would not have been impressive. <laughs> Kathy was the self-described frumpy school newspaper editor um, and kind of acted like it. <laughs> so um, that's, uh, I just, so I just say don't, don't get too discouraged <laughs> about young people if you're worried about them. Think about it this way also, for the first half of his life, up until basically 35, 36 years old, Tim Keller had no experience with urban ministry, no experience with international ministry, no experience with mercy ministry, and no experience with multi-ethnic ministry. All of these things that would characterize him today and part of what's made him so influential. All of that um, was not there. So anyway, just one last point on this, this first topic of, of how we close this back door in the church of all these young people, especially who are leaving Essentially, what we see from Tim, an example of somebody who's always seen that the gospel needs to apply to all of life. And I mentioned earlier, um, part of what I've done here with Cameron through Rooted is to talk about the importance of catechesis 
And one of Tim's most important messages to young people, to fa- young families, is when it, comes to the, when it comes to catechizing your kids, it's not an option of whether or not to do it. It's simply a matter of, simply a question of whether you will do it or the world will do it for you. So just, you can let the world do it, or you can take responsibility yourself and do that. And so one of the projects that Tim's working on that uh, Cameron and I have talked a lot about as well, and that I'm hopeful, we're, actually, I teach at Beeson Divinity School in cultural apologetics, and I make all of the students work on a group project of a sort of late modern or modern day catechism, group catechism. Um, and I say, you can't use any of the questions from the old ones. You have to use you know, question and answers from today. That's the whole history of catechisms, that they come from these times of tremendous transformation in the church. So that's kind of the big topic there of this transformation with people leaving the church. The second thing Tim and I are working on is related to opening. So that's kind of, think about that visually. That's the back door of the church that we're trying to close. But the other challenge that we face is that the front door of the church is also closed to outsiders. If you think about this, the uh, Tim, one of my, my favorite books and Tim's favorite books is called Destroyer of the Gods. It's by Larry Hurtado, recently deceased a scholar uh, from the UK. Absolutely amazing book. I can recommend that to anybody here. It's not going to be like diving into Charles Taylor, secular age. Don't worry. Um, Hurtado's Destroy Their Gods is, is absolutely amazing. It's basically why the second century church was so successful, why people became Christians. But think about this. That was a pre-Christian era. So the Bible's written to people who don't know about, about Christianity. That for most of Western history, we're in a Christendom culture where Christianity is politically dominant. So those two things can overlap. You know, parts of the world can be pre-Christian, parts of it can be Christendom. We are now in the first time in human history, in church history, in a post-Christian environment where people think they know what Christianity teaches. They think they hate it. They think they blame everything that's happening in our culture for it. But their entire critique is entirely based on Christian foundations that they will not acknowledge. That's our apologetic challenge for today and what Tim and I are trying to work on together through the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. Um, And I mentioned earlier that one of the things that just stuck with me is that I think what I want to do from the with the book is not go back and just learn from all of Tim's influences to retrace his life but to learn the methodology of adapting from a firm foundation to be able to answer the questions of our age and going forward. That's the particular challenge that we face there. Um, I'm going to talk about this more tomorrow. We're going to see how this goes. I'm going to try to do a sermon on the moral revolution of World War II and the Holocaust based on Psalm 13. Come, if you want to see a train wreck, that would be a good place to try to do that. In my class on cultural apologetics, I assign every student to write a sermon on what is the most difficult objection they can identify to Christianity. That's what I'm going to try to do tomorrow uh, from Elie Wiesel's work on the Holocaust in there. But one of the things that Tim has been working on, and this isn't in the book because this is part of what he and I are trying to work on together, is going back to essentially the insights borrowed from Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink of the early 20th century in the Netherlands because... If you go back even to that point, they were still anticipating this era that we were living in. So one of Tim's biggest influences is, is Bavink. You can listen to, I did, a, I did an interview recently with James Eglinton in Edinburgh, who's an expert in this theologian, Bavink. 
And uh, one of the things that that era realized is that when you look at the Bible in the temple, there was this area where the Gentiles and the Jews could mix. The, the Jews, the Gentiles can't go into the temple, but they can enter into the forecourts and interact. And when you look at Tim's life, his conversion comes about because he's belonging before he's believing. He's hanging out with these, these friends in, from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Bucknell. His friend Bruce Henderson said his gangling arms would just be flailing around and smashing the walls, like afraid he was going to have to pay for the damage to the walls because he was so argumentative and so demonstrative with that with sort of objections to Christianity. But it was precisely because he had that community to argue it out with that he was able to make progress and and sort of and then in a in a bolt he's able to convert and but he's already had this community that he's working all of this out with there as well. So what we're trying to do is develop more spaces like that. Um, interestingly, um, I mentioned earlier uh, that R.C. Sproul was a hu huge influence on the Kellers. Well, interestingly, so was Francis Schaeffer. But it can get a little bit confusing because it was counterculture Francis Schaeffer and counterculture R.C. Sproul. Not the later versions of them, but the earlier ones. Kathy made me cut out of the book a whole section where I talked about how Tolkien went from being this countercultural figure to being this middle America figure. And some of you who can go back and remember the 60s and 70s, remember The Hobbit, can remember that that was, it was like a big countercultural thing. These little people who sit in huts all day smoking, I mean, kind of fit the era. Um, but, you know, so that, but then with the movies, it's all transformed in there. But uh, anyway, so what he saw with Schaefer and with, uh, I mean, probably people don't even remember that Ligonier Ministry started out as Ligonier Valley Study Center in Stallstown, Pennsylvania, built off Labrie and Francis Schaefer and Edith Schaefer. I talk about all that in the book. So the idea is that community is the, as Leslie Newbigin would say, the missiologist, the hermeneutic of the gospel. It's how, they, how people see the gospel lived out in love for one another that then helps them to believe later. So anyway, I think one thing that uh, Tim does well is he engages the academic and the practical, engages the head and the heart and the hands at the same time. And you can see in the book more of how we do that or how he does that. Uh, but the last, uh, last point I have here is that we, we've got, as we try to close this back door of the church, with 40 million Americans who've left in 25 years. We try to open the front door of the church so that the Jews and Gentiles can mix together and so that, that people who don't yet believe in Christ can see it lived out in community. But the next thing we've got to do is to send out the equipped. And one of the things that I find so helpful about Tim is that, and this can apply to whatever vocation you're in, um, I read a biography of another figure recently, and I noticed there was a conspicuous absence. There was no criticism. This leader had no weaknesses. I don't know about you, but I don't learn a lot from people who don't have weaknesses because I have a lot of weaknesses, so I need some encouragement from people who are more realistic. That was not Tim. There were two points in his ministry in New York where basically the, the ministry was in free fall. One was because they grew too quickly in the 1990s, that's when um, his, uh, his friend Dick Kaufman came in, and Dick just sadly recently just died. He had dementia, um, but I interviewed his wife, Liz, for the books. But, uh, so Dick Kaufman came in, and then the second was after 
Um, the church grew by a thousand people right on the spot. 9-11, they kept most of those members. And a pastor from Oklahoma City called Tim and said, be ready. The trauma, remember the federal building bombing in the 1990s, said, be ready. The trauma runs much deeper than you can understand. Uh, Tim was overwhelmed um, with responsibilities. The staff was in chaos. Kathy was, uh, he had cancer for the first time, thyroid cancer. Kathy had Crohn's disease, which she struggled with for most of her adult life. And um, then that was when his good friend Bruce Terrell showed up and still is the executive pastor at Redeemer today. A lot of people in Birmingham know Bruce uh, through a lot of PCA connections and whatnot. But um, I just appreciate that Tim was willing in the book. And um, it was interesting. I, I talked with one of his best friends, Catherine Alsdorf. And we had this experience where she would be weeping because of how much she loved Tim and appreciated Tim. And then she'd see me scribbling these notes, and then she'd say, but don't you dare make him out to be a saint. We were so angry with him. It drove him to his knees in prayer because he was such a bad, you know, bad leader. And Tim's like, yeah, I was a pretty bad leader. And I said, no, you're not a bad leader, but you're a really terrible manager. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I'll concede that. In fact, a lot of people told me that Tim Keller would, would not recall to drink water unless his wife Kathy was there to remind him. And I was like, well, that's a good metaphor. That'll preach. And they were like, no, literally, she has to give him the water or else he won't drink in there. Like every leader, no matter how successful you are, is not good at everything. And they need help. And the best way to get help is to admit your weaknesses and to admit your mistakes there. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good place to, a good place to stop because when you, when you admit your weaknesses, it's what allows the, the spirit to work. <laughs> Not that the spirit needs our permission, but sometimes it just facilitates that work to admit those weaknesses. And so when you're working on an authorized biography along these lines, you're a bit at the mercy. I remember sitting outside of, um, uh, my office in the gym at Samford University and just saying, you know, the, the book had gone to the Kellers, my first draft, and I was just like, oh, man, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's their life. I mean, how, do you, how would you feel somebody tries to capsulate your entire life in these, you know, 80,000, 90,000 words or so? I remember my wife just giving me encouragement, and she said, Colin, it's not about you. <laughs> it's their life. <laughs> You're just trying to help steward that. But I think one of the best things they did in the book that allows us to apply it to wherever we are in whatever vocation that we're in is to understand that it's, it's about God. It's not about them. And the way you make it about God is by admitting your weaknesses and showing how God had worked through that. So hopefully that stands out in the book because as we look at this overall situation with this new situation in a secular age and with the de-churching, it's plainly obvious that it's not going to be a bunch of pastors who figure everything out. It's not going to be a bunch of professors writing books, but it's going to have to be everybody in the church praying above all. Uh, and maybe these revivals that we're seeing are the answers to those prayers. But working together, collaborating on that. I'm actually working on an event right now in New York, our first gathering. I invited 26 fellows, people who are kind of carrying on Tim Keller's legacy. I invited 26 of them, Tim and I did, and 26 agreed and 20 and passed our extensive evaluations and 26 could come to New York on the same date 
from Australia, from Scotland, from England, from all over North America. It felt like this has to be the Lord. Um, I don't know what else to attribute that to, but even as I've gone around town talking to different people, business leaders, about inviting them to come up and to join us in, in conversation, it's been amazing the kind of response that I've seen of people. Like once you name the problem, um, a lot of things click. And then once you say the solution is this joint effort of prayer and collaboration across the church, it feels like there's an agency. We can do something about this together. And so I'm hoping that's the legacy of the book. Tim and I are hoping that's the legacy of the book, that it'll galvanize that kind of movement to carry on the best parts of the legacy of what we've learned from him before our own age going forward. So let's take some questions. Oh, Rita, okay, right up front. Yeah, how's he doing? Well, um, you know, it's a it's a roller coaster. So I was preaching at Shades Valley Community Church in June, about to head off to the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference when I started to get some panicked te- text messages from people. And, um, and sure enough, the treatments themselves nearly killed him in June. And then I started to get some, some similar messages in December. He had some other complications come up. And a couple of weeks ago, again, got some messages about him being in the hospital. And the crazy thing is every single one of those times, that's later that week, Tim has called me up and he's in great spirits. It's just kind of an amazing thing. And every time there's been this sort of miraculous bounce back. So one reason why I wrote the book so quickly and the publisher moved up the publication day by months was because we, we wanted it to come out while he was still alive. And that just feels like a miracle that we were able to do that. And so I hope he's around for another 10 years. He's got a lot more he wants to write. He's got part of his own story that he needs to tell. Um, so I hope he gets to do that. That's what we're praying for. He goes back next month, I think, for another major um, experimental treatment. Let's read it. Other questions? There you go. I'm a stranger to your 40,000 statistic. Yeah. 40 million, yeah. 40 million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, my husband and I was raised in Rainbow Grace Church. Right. So I've been back in Alabama. We get our kids in Portland Children's Church every Sunday. Where my realtor was talking to me about how, you know, your house will sell. God has a plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are very open. What do you do when you live in the bubble? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, what I'll say about that is, again, I do a lot of Birmingham tours for local groups and for other groups. One of the first things I tell them is every single thing you want to believe about Birmingham is true somewhere, and I can take you there. <laughs> the amazing thing for me is that in English Village, I will run down Cahaba Road and be in a neighborhood that voted 70% for Trump, and then I'll watch walk two blocks up toward Continental Bakery, and it feels like I'm in a living, breathing NPR show. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's like, it is just a dramatically different community. Just step on UAB's campus. I mean, I remember I was at Chipotle at one point after it opened down there, and I, you know, I went to college and graduate school in the Midwest, and I think I saw two Michigan State sweatshirts. I can't remember what else I saw. And I thought, this does not feel like Birmingham at all. Um, And then, of course, that's not even to mention all of the international students that are at UAB. So, the thing about Birmingham is that, like I said, everything is true somewhere. It is both 
deeply religious and all kinds of different things, but also really secular. So I just encourage people. It's actually one reason why I, I, I think it's one of Advent's advantages is that you're at least in closer proximity as a church body to some of those differences. Um, either if you're living in Mountain Brook like me or something like that. But I just say, just take a couple steps. Like, I mean, just for us being in church in Southside, it's all I was. Uh, this is going to be really niche, but some of you may remember Marianne Williamson's, you know, Democratic nomination or whatnot, kind of a new age figure. I remember thinking, where in Birmingham would you be able to buy her books? Across the street from my church, Golden Temple and Five Points. Sure enough, all the Marianne Williamson books there. Like you just got to take a few steps out of that zone and all of a sudden you're in a different world and just kind of build those bridges and meet people. It's one reason why we have our kids in a church downtown. It's like, I love English Village. It's just not quite, you know, it's a bubble, right? So we just try to step out of that as much as we can. So or we, we played Southside baseball for a while too, which we really loved. And also we were getting hit in the head with batteries and the cops were kind of getting called to separate teams and all sorts of stuff. So... It was quite an experience in there. We're doing Mountain Brook baseball now. It's not quite as dramatic. Except when we play Vestavia, then we have to call the cops again, but whatever. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Well, the bike is bleeding. Of course, you've got to get the young people. Right. There's a local church, you know, that has been very well and branching off yeah. and getting huge. And, yeah. and I'm not authority to them, but I was talking about the music and it's up right. and it's almost... And, uh, and I think that's great, but I wasn't sure how deep that was. Yeah. Then, then the Asbury thing happened. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm, to me, that's very encouraging. Like, you've got some young people saying, I've got such a hole, and yeah. there's got to be something better. Yeah. And all this stuff that I'm seeing, and there's that, just to stay there for days and days, and yeah. just keep going, that's pretty strong. Yeah, by definition... There's no revival that comes after good times in the church. I mean, by definition, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So the whole point is that it's bad. And that's, I think, one part why the Jesus movement was just this incredible shock, because you look back and it's, you know, it's Woodstock, it's the counterculture, it's the Vietnam War and all that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, Tim Keller's conversion comes almost immediately before the Kent State shootings and the massive protests that shut down college campuses all over the place. God's never doing exactly what we expect him to be doing. And one of my friends who's been in campus ministry, um, Anglican campus ministry for 20 years said, he's like, Colin, this younger generation is like, we were cynical. The elder millennials we were pretty cynical. It's a bit of the Gen X part of us, I think. But like, man, the young people, they are really, uh, really genuine. <laughs> like they're just, they just don't have that edge to them. Um, they got their own challenges, but they don't really have that edge to them. They're, they seem to be seeking something else. So who knows? But I think another also good rule of thumb about revival and encouragement about the church is that you know you really are asking for the right thing when you're asking God to do it for the church that you don't like <laughs> or the church you're skeptical about down the street. Because a lot of times your prayers for revival are kind of just make me look special, you know, make my church look special or solve our problems. But when you pray for the people that you don't think deserve revival, that's probably the better spirit. One other thing that's really influential with Tim's ministry and through a city to city church planting ministry and through the gospel coalition is that in any given community, there will never be one church that reaches everybody. It will be all kinds of different churches that reach everybody. 
And I think when you look at Birmingham that way, yes, there are, there are some churches that I would never recommend anybody to go to. But there are also some churches that they wouldn't be my main recommendation, but I see people flourishing there that weren't flourishing in my church. And so we've got so many good different kinds of churches in Birmingham that I think, um, but I will say this, I think if revival does come to Birmingham, it'll be with people mixing and intermingling and loving each other who don't normally do that with each other. And that'll be a good sign of revival. Go ahead. Yes, I am familiar with that one. Yes. I'm halfway through it. I did hear yeah. him speak about his book, and it was mm-hmm. a very passionate yep. uh, exhortation in terms of the church being willing to speak out against right. evil. Right. And that being our cultural evil, that is. And he's making comparisons of where we are now to um, Nazi Germany. Right. And the church was silent then. As the church is being silent. Yep. Now, how do we, especially when you think of young people, right? How does the church, in terms of trying to attract yeah. the secular, but at the same time speaking God's truth, right? Where we're not being bent by culture, we are. Right. Because so many churches now are bending the knee. Yeah. To call, to call well, I think we. Versus yeah. taking the stand. Right. That's a, that's a really well, I think, you know what? I can, I can tell you where young people are not in church. They are not in churches that compromise biblical teaching. <laughs> that's one of the most confusing things consistently to me is that to reach the younger generation, we need to. I mean, we just published J.D. Greer, the. You know, previous Southern Baptist Convention president responded to Andy Stanley in Atlanta. And Stanley's argument was, we're not going to reach this generation if we keep talking about homosexuality. That was his basic argument. And Greer's like, how dumb do you think young people are? They know what we teach about homosexuality. They know what the Bible says. They're going to treat, they're going to think you're a liar and a cheat if you don't tell them what you think. He's in Raleigh-Durham. I mean, it's not exactly the easiest place to do that, but he said one of the best ways we love people is through clarity. Um, now, that I mean, there's the, always the combination of grace and truth in there, um, and so you, you do them all at once, but I, we're not, I just, I don't, it's just, I've never understood the whole idea we need to accommodate for the younger generation because that is, in my book, I talk about how in the 19th century, New York City was the capital for evangelicals. People may not remember that, but the largest revival in American history, 1857-58, businessmen's or prayer meeting revival, was in New York City. North Dutch Church, Jeremiah Lanfear. Um, Massive revival. And you can just look and, where did Billy Graham go in 1957? New York City. Why 1957? 100th anniversary of that revival. Where did D.L. Moody go? Where did Billy Sunday go? It's always New York. But what happened? The Upper East Side evangelicals, in the, at the turn of the century, 30% of Upper East Side people were evangelical churchgoers. 30%. Now, I opened my chapter on that with The Wolf of Wall Street and with uh, Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities because that was the Upper East Side of the 1980s. Look how much that had changed. The essential transformation was that the Upper East Side folks, evangelicals, said the morals are great, but these miracles, nobody with a brain are going to believe anymore in a post-Darwin 
age. So they tossed out the Bible, kind of kept the ethics, and within a generation, the church was gone. By the time Tim Keller shows up in Manhattan, I'm not talking about the boroughs. The boroughs had a lot of great churches, especially a lot of ethnic churches. But in Manhattan, basically, people told me there were four evangelical churches. Four. That's how badly that situation had reversed. But Keller did not make any progress in Manhattan by... In fact, this may be confusing for people to remember, but like the issue for them was people not sleeping together before marriage. It wasn't homosexuality. It wasn't transgender. It was just that plain fact. It was like, in fact, a journalist came and said, well, we know, I put it in the book, something like Kathy Keller said to a a journalist from the New Yorker or somewhere like that, can you believe that all these people are in, young people are in a church that teaches the biblical teaching on marriage? And the journalist laughed like, boy, that would be something else. She's like, no, that, that, that's, that is what we say in this church. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it just never follows. I, I come from a mainline tradition. I, the easiest way to guarantee young people will leave is when you don't teach what the Bible says, which starts with grace, starts with the gospel, but then certainly extends with the commands of Scripture as well. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, so the question about just you know how, how do you connect these dots? So uh, one of the things I talk about in the book, you can go look at it. There is in his preaching book that came out in 2016. That was from an Oxford talk. It's his Anglo-Saxon warrior illustration. So they were asking him a lot of questions about homosexuality, and and he and he realizes I can't talk to them just about homosexuality because they don't agree that the Bible has any authority. That's the problem. The Bible doesn't have any authority. How am I supposed to talk with them if the Bible has no authority? Okay, well, I need to be able to recognize that homosexuality comes from a particularly modern conception of identity. It's unique to the modern West. Never existed before in human history. So it goes all the way back to Montaigne and kind of the 1500s. Okay, so I gotta go back and identity. How do I illustrate the underlying assumptions of identity? Because the basic tenets of our dominant dominant religion of expressive individualism is that I'm my own person, I can do whatever I want, and everybody else has to affirm me in that decision. How do I get underneath that and help them to see? So he says an Anglo-Saxon warrior says, go back to the era of William the Conqueror, 1066. Got an Anglo-Saxon warrior, and he has two impulses. One is, I wanna kill everybody. The second is, I wanna have sex with men. Well, the community says, definitely don't do that second thing, but totally do the first thing. Okay, so nobody forges their identity in isolation. Then he goes to the 21st century in New York City, and he says, same person, same two impulses. Definitely don't do the first, but have at it with the second. whole point is that this, it's a fiction that we form our identity somehow on our own. It comes from what our community values. And as a result, it's relative. It's not immutable. It's not permanent there. So that's a good example of, of trying, of, of going like, you can't just argue based on, well, the Bible says this, because really just don't give a rip what the Bible says. They have all these unspoken assumptions in here that you have to undermine before you can unsettle them to be able to say, oh, oh, I really did think that I was doing this all on my own, but I can see that my culture has just changed and it simply dictates different things that are good and bad for me. So that's just a brief illustration of what he uses for that. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if you 
Other questions? Um, by chance, did you hear the, um, the Mars Hill, the, one of the last interviews they added at the Air Hill? I didn't actually listen to that one, but I, I participated so, in the podcast. It was so good. Yeah. I just was so well, struck by his humility. And just... Yeah, so you know, I did a number of the interviews in there because Tim had worked with Mark Driscoll uh, a few different times, especially through our, our employer, the Gospel Coalition. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge with young people, so the contrast I always give is that you had Mark Driscoll at the time, but you also had Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler's sermons, if anybody knows him, is a preacher, a Baptist preacher in Dallas, Texas, okay? Huge church, the village church. Um, Chandler's sermons were worse than Driscoll's. Um, in fact, Chandler had the good sense at one point to get rid of all digital record of his sermons. They were that bad. Another person who was young at the time and was really controversial was David Platt. And that was right here in Birmingham. Okay, the thing about young preachers is that they are not a finished product. Um, and especially when you put them in charge of a megachurch. Uh, in fact, when I started going out to Brook Hills um, as a news editor for Christianity Today, the big kind of selling point was we have America's youngest megachurch pastor. And I thought, I don't think you should brag about that. <laughs> probably, anyway, because you just, you just change. You change with time. You're just not a finished product in there. So the, the tension is that sometimes they turn out to be Mark Driscoll, and it goes really badly. But sometimes they turn out to be Matt Chandler and David Platt, and they actually figure things out over time. So that's the difficult thing. Is like it's, it's easy to see these things in retrospect, but it's easy to take for granted the good situations and not the bad ones. So Tim's... Yeah, Tim's had a few people he's tried to help that have really not turned out well, but he also has dozens of examples to the contrary, so hard to know. And not a finished product. Yeah, go ahead, Drew. The um, focus of the book seems to be, I mean, it's about Tim Keller. Yeah. It's really about, you were talking about all those other folks. All these other people yeah. that impacted him. Yeah. Where did that idea come from to present the book before? Was it, you just come to you and you're talking to him? It was the only book Tim would agree to do, I knew, and it was the only book that I would be able to write. Um, look, hopefully someday there'll be critical biographies, academic biographies that can look back on his influence, look back on his life. I'm way too close to Tim to be able to write that. That's not my project. Um, I kind of just wanted to give fodder for future historians, people like that. It's like, okay, this is the definitive account. This is what Tim thinks. You can disagree with him. You can say it was wrong, but this is what he thinks in there. He just doesn't like to talk about himself. You know, I've got a friend working on a biography of one of uh, Tim's contemporaries. And for that biography, he has every single journal entry for every day of this person's life. And I think it's going to be like 25 volumes or something like that. It's just crazy. Um, I didn't have anything like that. And I just, I don't even know if Tim keeps a journal. He's just, just whenever you talk to me, he wants to talk about who he's reading, what he's learning. <laughs> it's just the way he talks. So I wanted the book to reflect the way he talks. So when I originally pitched it, I said, this doesn't have to be me, but somebody needs to write it, and they need to write it like this. Because um, it's the only one he'll agree to. That was the idea. It's a great question. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I, I just, 
Look, great leaders are readers. Um, you, you've got to be able to access experience that is not just your dumb things that you did. <laughs> you've got to learn from other people's dumb mistakes. You've got to learn what worked from them in there. And, um, you know, Keller offers a unique opportunity to learn from an entire era of history. Um, I didn't even mention here Elizabeth Elliot. I mean, goodness sakes. I, di- I didn't mention Elizabeth Elliot was one of their biggest influences. Uh, Kathy, as a student, has published in Elizabeth's book, Let Me Be a Woman. People, I don't think, knew that before this book. Um, people didn't realize that Kathy Keller was one of the last people C.S. Lewis ever wrote to before he died. Um, while she was a child, <laughs> 13 years old. Um, they carried on a correspondence. The best part about that, though, is that Kathy thought... Lewis was a struggling children's author who needed encouragement from her. <laughs> and, then, and, then she, and then she, at age 15, goes to visit his house. And he's dead, but she hangs out with his brother. And, uh, and then she finds Joy Davidman's son. And she says to him at some point later, it's a good thing, it's a good thing I wasn't older because I would have given your mother a run for her money. Uh, that is just Kathy Keller. She is quite a quite a personality in there. But um, yeah, so I mean, I, hopefully the book is that tour through all of these other people. One of the most gratifying responses has been people saying, oh, I've added so many people to my reading list. Now I was like, okay, you got the point. How do people your reading list? Go ahead, Rita. Um, could you talk a little bit about the courses that the Keller Center has? Yeah. Keller Center courses. Yeah, so three of them right now. Um, so basically, these are online learning cohorts. One of the things we learned about through COVID is that um, doing your child's elementary school or high school online only is a really bad idea. But all of us need ongoing education, professional development. That's, that's true for pastors. It's true for professors. It's true for, for parents. So we've got three online learning cohorts that people can sign up for. One of them is from uh, one of Tim's closest kind of young protégés, that's Dr. Christopher Watkin out of Monash University in Australia, wrote the amazing phenomenon of a book called Biblical Critical Theory, which is very long, but very amazing. We did, I, I really screwed this up. I gave 25 slots for people at $250 to do a reading study with him on that. I think before we realized our mistake, we had 52 people signed up. We currently have 500 people on the waiting list for that one. But we've opened up a new session for the fall with a much bigger number there. So if you're like me and you're looking at a big book and you want to actually learn from the author and kind of read it with him, that's your biblical critical theory. Second is Trevin Wax actually starts next week. That's called Five Major Challenges Facing the Church in the West. An overview to our basic situation, particular challenges that we face in the church. Trevin teaches that typically at Oxford University when he goes over there to lecture on apologetics. That's had a huge response. We have more than 100 people signed up for that. The third one is uh, Joshua Ryan Butler on the biblical sexual ethic. People don't know this because his uh, book, Beautiful Union, is not out till next uh, till April. They don't realize yet that that is the best book that has been written about the beauty of God's design in marriage and sex and gender. Once the book comes out, they'll realize that. So that one's really ideal for campus ministers, parents, anybody who's trying to figure out how do I flip this. Essentially, the the basic concept is the the modern view of sex is actually incredibly ugly. And we're in this massive, people don't realize this, we're in this massive sex recession 
where people are having way less sex than ever before because of this ugly view. Yet we have this TV show Friends you know, fantasy about how everybody else is doing this. And so what he tried to do is show the ugliness of the non-biblical view, but the absolute beauty of God's design, like I said, in sex and gender and, and marriage. And so we have that cohort going on as well. So we'll have a bunch more uh, coming up in the fall, but those are the ones that we've got going right now. You can, you can sign up for the fall one with Watkin if you want. So thanks, Rita. Other questions? Yeah, I yeah go for it. Stand. Not what they came from. Yeah, we did um we did a we did a couple podcasts last year. They're not driving either, by the way. That's right. They're not getting driver's licenses. So I, I did a we did two podcasts last year. One was called Scrolling Alone, the other was Gaming Alone. The first was on young women and um, Instagram. The second was on young men and video games. And basically, what we're trying to help people to understand, I, I do something, it would be a fun thing to do some other time, but I take, uh, in my cultural politics class, I take a whiteboard, I show that the church membership rate has declined from 70% where it was for 50 years, in the last 20 years it's declined to 47%. And I put everything on a wall, started in the year 2000, and I, try to, and I, just, I run people through it and I say, what caused this? And we go through the whole thing, but, you know, I'll just cheat and jump to the end. 2000 was the first year that a majority of Americans had the Internet in their homes. Um, the Internet is, it changes everything. Yeah. We are just, we're like, I saw somebody say that the Internet is not so much like the printing press, which is a typical analogy, but more akin to the invention of language itself. Um, and so for me as an elder millennial, I'm like, I, you know, half my, my early life was all analog and now my career has all been digital. But of course we get further away from that. Of course, for like where identity gets primarily in the digital first category and embodied second. And that changes all kinds of different, um, uh, ideas there. So the key is for either the, the women with Instagram or the, or the boys with gaming is it's not to ban these things entirely, but to bring them into embodied settings where they can participate with individuals. Like video games are not the problem. The problem is the isolation that comes from them sitting at home with the internet in games that are designed to never let you want to leave. That's the challenge. So yeah, a couple podcasts out there that we did on that. Go ahead. Um, I'm just curious, um, in terms of in your role, the gospel yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, so we get a chance. I mean, I, the way we frame things is thinking about the gospel for all of life and all the world. And a lot of what we're talking about here is the all of life part is just to show people how the gospel is good news for everything in your job, in your family, in your church, with how you engage in digital media, all those sorts of things. But then also it's good news for the world. And I just got a notice about our new editor in Australia uh, last night, and it's just God's doing some pretty amazing things. And um, one of my favorite writers is Sarah Zalstra. She's our senior writer. Her explicit job for me, uh, she and I were in school together for journalism, is just find positive stories of what God is doing. And um, so on the one-year anniversary of the Russia invasion of Ukraine, we did one article they're up there on our site right now about Ukrainian Christians saying there's nowhere else we'd rather be than right here, right now. It's kind of the spiritual openness and transformation. And we actually talked to one of our really good friends um, who is a pastor in Moscow. 
And the headline we had from that is, God is going to judge us all. And he's been reading a lot of Bonhoeffer lately. And, and we went back to him and said, are you sure you want to say this? Because you're going to go to jail. Well, it turned out both of his grandfathers have been sent to Siberia for being Christians. So he's like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just, I, I've got to speak the truth. Uh, in there. So it's a difficult situation, but it's absolutely inspiring. So that's what we try to do is tell the story of what God's doing underneath what you see from the headlines. Um, He's always doing something amazing. Just got to keep looking. Anybody else? One more. One more? more. It's all good. You can always ask me questions. Thanks, Gil. Great. Masterful job being transparent so we can see through you. Thank you. Would you mind closing us in a prayer, Yeah, let's pray. Here we go. God, we thank you for the ways that you are working in this world and preparing us for the next. We pray, God, you'd give us eyes to see. And help God to expand everybody's rings on their tree here, Lord, as they, as we stay closely connected to you at the center, but continue to grow and just give us that passion to continue to learn and to seek a deeper experience with you, especially in prayer. Let that be the legacy of our time together this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.